Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Current Yield, Brad's interest rate observer of the air. I am Jim Grant, and with me as always, uh, Eric Whitehead, the dials, and back from his uh, short spell on the disabled list, Evan Lorenz, the great deputy editor of Grant's. Evan was, as you might have recalled from last podcast, was absent because he was tossing around these 250-pound hand weights. We told him not to, but he did and paid the price. So, uh, Thank you for joining us today. We have uh, not one sponsor, but two. We have. Uh, we are proud to be sponsored by NetSuite, by Oracle, the business management software that handles every aspect of your business in an easy-to-use cloud platform. And we are sponsored as well by us, in particular by the April 9th conference, Grants Interest Rate Observer Spring Conference, to be held at the Plaza Hotel. Did I mention the date, Eric? April 9th. And uh, it's hard to know how exactly to sing the praises of this conference and do it justice. Uh, but I'll begin by just mentioning that Bob Farrell, the perennial great institutional investor, all-star strategist and technician is going to be there. Uh, Richard Silla, the great historian of interest rates, tells about the past, present, and future of rates. Wendy Battleson, authority on the art market. Uh, Ray Russell Napier, authority on monetary disorder, of which the world has plenty. Steve Hankey on inflation of all kinds, the hyper and the other and one of the most accomplished stock pickers around, uh, John Hughes. So anyway, that's, uh, that's us, April 9th. Be there, please. Evan, I, I, while you somehow prepare to tell us about a bank that could and did lose, like a, a Hunt Brothers caliber loss in the municipal bond market. I just want to mention a few things about this French bond. Go for it. Yeah, yeah. So uh, this caught my eye yesterday. The Financial Times reported, and almost breathlessly, uh, France revels in sovereign debt sweet spot as demand for 30-year deal soars. Quote, France has ventured into the 30-year bond market for the first time in two years, attracting strong demand from investors seeking solid yields while central banks around the world seem committed to keeping rates low. I guess by solid yields, the Financial Times Times of London means yields greater than zero, right? Pretty much. Well, this is 150 basis points to the good, so I guess to that particular extent it's solid. But uh, Evan has prepared some data, because we around here at Grants are data-driven, like certain central banks we could name. And the long-term annual rate of inflation in France, long-term, I like guess five years, is what, uh, 1%? Just about, yeah. yeah. And last 12 months or so, it's been a little higher than that, but call it 1%. So what, what you're getting is 50 basis points free and clear of the rate of... Uh, spoliation of the euros in your pocket. And, uh, you know, the, the European Central Bank has bought 420.3 billion euros worth of French debt. It's stockpiling this stuff as if nobody else wants it. So I'm going to conjecture that, uh, that without these accumulations of euros and French-dominated euro debt by the ECB, that the rate of interest on French debt would be higher. So to that extent, it is, I submit to you, Evan, it's a slightly less than authentic rate. However, it is the rate out there, although the bonds sold off massively recently to yield like 157 from 150. But still, what what are people asking? Why, why, I mean, why don't people uh, write their congressman or something and demand a higher rate of interest? The streets might be blocking them with the yellow jacket protesters. I suppose. And also, if you're going to write to your congressman about French debt, that litter will probably go unanswered. Anyway, that, that will conclude my sermonette, Cry for Help on French Debt. Evan, please do tell us about this titanic loss by the Deutsche Bank. Deutsche Bank is a perennial problem child. We actually wrote about Deutsche in uh, early 2016, and the headline we used at that time was Big Sick Puppy. If you don't remember, 
in early 16, um, Deutsche Bank's contingent convertible bonds, which get ridden off or turned into equity in the event of problem, which is a very real uh, probability with Deutsche. We're trading at very low levels and we're knocking down the Cocos for other banks in Europe. Not much has gotten better for Deutsche. It's a very big bank. Its balance sheet is 1.3 trillion euros. It's levered a little bit over 20 times assets to equity. It has a gigantic derivatives portfolio that foots to 48.3 trillion euros. So it, it's no piker. It's, it's a systematically important uh, financial institution. Systemically. Systemically yeah. important. It actually wound up in the uh, the headlines of the Wall Street Journal today for a loss of $1.6 billion. Now, th this loss is remarkable for a couple of reasons. One, it was for a portfolio of uh, $7.8 billion of municipal bonds that they acquired in 2007. One question is, how do you lose money on munis? The other thing is, this loss was actually incurred in June of 2016. The bank didn't actually own up to it. The, the investigative journalist at the Wall Street Journal actually had to dig into the numbers. It's and a heck of a job, by the way, by the journal on this. It is. And in the 10 years that Deutsche Bank basically held on to this trade, People inside the bank systematically tried to hide the losses, understate the reserves that they need to put aside for this, basically fib about the health of their balance sheet. They even uh, created um, a plan called Project Marla to reclassify the bonds investments as financial guarantees so they wouldn't actually have to mark them to market on a daily basis. But how did they lose this money? Did, were the bonds themselves in trouble? Was it the derivatives with which they hedged? Was that the problem? What was the source of the loss? The journal wasn't entirely clear on that. They noted that some of the bonds were from Puerto Rico, and of course, Puerto Rico was written down, but it was a large portfolio of bonds that included stuff, everything from California to New Jersey. Not only that, there was a monoline insurance on the portfolio of bonds. Um, the monoline insurer might have gone bankrupt in the financial crisis. The journal didn't actually name who it was. But Deutsche, at the time that they took out this trade, was actually worried about default and actually bought CDS from Berkshire Hathaway. Yeah. And they actually made some money on the CDS. So it's still not entirely clear to me how they lost all these funds. But to me, this actually raises bigger issues about Deutsche and kind of banks, especially European banks in general. I mean, Deutsche for a decade was fibbing about the losses that it actually had incurred or was, uh, you know, suffering on this portfolio. Um, it was raising equity, so it basically wasn't informing new shareholders when it was raising money. And nobody had a real sense of how much capital was there. And I mean, today we can see on this balance sheet that, you know, there's roughly $20 of assets for every $1 of equity. What we don't really know is the quality of those assets and kind of the hidden losses. Banks in general and in, in, in Europe uh, in particular have taken out these um, uh, capital relief trades and uh, to try to boost their books where they nominally get a third-party guarantor, oftentimes a hedge fund, to guarantee you know payment on any loans that go dud. But the only problem is the hedge funds, in order to juice their own returns, tend to use debt. So there's this systematic extraction of capital out of these banks as they're trying to boost their return on equity. At the same time, nobody is really sure about the asset quality because they systematically engage in games to, you know. So every time you feel a temptation to be contrary and to buy the equity of a, of a European bank, it's like this old Adam Smith book years ago, not the other Adam Smith, the Scottish guy, but the contemporary Adam Smith. His line was that every time he quoted somebody, he said, every time I wake up and feel an urge to trade cocoa, I roll over and go back to sleep. <laughs> the same might be said with uh, the equity of these European banks. So what, what is the price to book of Deutsche Bank now? It's, it's a, I'll need to look at that. I checked like a month ago, it was like 20-ish percent range, but it, it's at a substantial uh, discount. So the market thinks that 80% of the book is, is worthless. Thereabouts. I mean, the, the problems at Deutsche, I mean, it, it's not just, it, it's a perennial problem. It's one that's not addressed. I mean, the, the, the problem with the European banks is they have been sitting on losses for years and not marking the bricks to market. Yeah. The, the, the market kind of knows this and it kind of, you know, 
doubts the overall quality of European banks. And if you check the Eurostox bank index, it's trading at a pretty decent discount to book, whereas, you know, any U.S. bank index is trading at a premium. I, I, I mean, this is a headline that came out this year, but it could have been almost any year. For Deutsche Bank, the trickle of bad news just does not stop. That's like an evergreen, right? It is an evergreen. I mean, take that uh, for other headlines. I mean, if I said ECB ready to do whatever it takes, you say, oh, that, that's 2012. That's when Draghi came out and said, I'm going to backstop the European financial system. Or Lehman Brothers going to fail tomorrow. You say, oh, that's 2008. But Deutsche Bank in trouble, shares plumbing new lows. I honestly couldn't tell you the year that's that headline Monday, from. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, or Friday. They don't do that in the weekend, though. 2009, 2010, right. 2015. All right. So, ladies and gentlemen, the time has come to get into some detail about the fabulous NetSuite by Oracle. And nobody's allowed to turn up the speed on his or her podcast. No, no, no. So, the business management software that handles every aspect of your business is as easy to use cloud platform. That is NetSuite. With NetSuite, you can save money, time, and unneeded business headaches by managing sales, finance, and accounting orders and HR instantly right from your desk or even your phone. Thousands of the best-known brands and fastest-growing companies use NetSuite to manage their business. And now it's available to you. The power of the world's most popular cloud management system is more affordable than you think. Right now, NetSuite is offering you valuable insights to overcome the obstacles that are holding you back for free. Don't miss out on an unleashing your business full potential with this free guide, Crushing the Five Barriers to Growth. You'll learn how to acquire new customers, increase profits, and finally get real visibility into your cash flow. So get NetSuite's guide to crushing the five barriers to growth when you go to netsuite.com grant. Download free crushing the five barriers to growth guide today at netsuite.com grant. That's netsuite.com grant. Uh, not, not to beat on a dead horse, we uh, described capital relief trades in detail in the January 25th edition of grants to find out exactly how they work and how they might go wrong. You need to pick up that issue. But in short, you can take a portfolio of loans that might have required $120 million of capital and shrink down the required capital to $87 million. And before the capital relief trade, the bank had to provide $120 million. After the trade, it provides $22 million, and the hedge fund providing capital relief provides $65 million. Well, after that story came out, an anonymous source came to grants and provided a paper from one of the hedge funds that deals in these trades, and it describes a specific trade with a specific bank. Now, it, to protect our source, we're not going to name the hedge fund or the bank, but we will read a couple of paragraphs from this eight-page paper. Now, the hedge fund wanted to sing the praises of the uh, the bank hive. So it said, rigorous underwriting process. The bank's acquisition finance segment has a robust underwriting process in that 80% of deals are rejected before they're taken to the credit committee. This is similar to another bank reviewed. Uh, it just goes on to sing the praises about right. how, yeah. how good of an underwriter yeah. they are. Robust is the best thing you can do. And in the last paragraph on page eight, it began saying, bank was not very diligent in collecting recovery data and therefore does not have any historical average recovery rate data. So maybe they're so busy making sure all the loans are pristine that they didn't even bother to check the ones that went bad because no, never mind. The Banks have one job. I know, yeah. The, the, the one job is keeping track of the money. They did not keep <laughs> track of the money. That, that was their one job. You know what I'd call that? I would call that unrobust. All right, just a word on the late, great Don Newcomb. Do you know, Evan and Eric, that Don Newcomb was the first pitcher to win Rookie of the Year, Most Valuable Player, and Cy Young Awards during his career. And only Justin Verlander of the Tigers has duplicated that feat. And Newcomb became, in 1949, the first black pitcher to start a World Series game. He was uh, in the class of, uh, of Jackie Robinson and other greats who crashed into these barriers and demolished them by dint of their sheer talent and determination. So I, I used to watch Newcomb uh, when I was, I, was, I was a Dodgers fan back in the, uh, in the 1950s before they went to L.A. And Newcomb was such a good hitter, he would be sent in to pinch hit for position players. He hit 271. He was like the ninth most uh, accomplished batter by measured by batting average in the history of the major leagues. And... Uh, 
as his career wore on and faltered, he confessed that he was a drunk. And he spent the last 30 years of his life staying sober and uh, helping others do the same. So RIP Don Newcomb, you were terrific. So I, I want to uh, close with, a, with something that might not seem to be exactly a posit to a podcast devoted to the rate of interest. But I came across something in, in Thursday's uh, Financial Times of London having to do with the Amazon puffer jacket. Now, Eric, perhaps you know about this. I, I'm guessing that Evan does not. But uh, Eric, I think, is a more compliant husband than, am I right? Well, I'm a horrible husband. And what, oh, you can tell us later the details, but you're a good husband, right, Eric? Pretty good, yeah. Uh, then you probably know, as uh, we readers of the FT do know, that the uh, Amazon jacket is selling for $139.99, that it is a sensation, that it, ha it has its own hashtag and its own Instagram account, and people just can't, you know, you go on the web, you Google or something, and they'll say, men are obsessed by these socks. And you say, oh, for Christ's sake. You know, they're, no, they're not. They're not obsessed by these socks. This is bait click. I can, I'm 72 years old, but I can tell bait click. But people evidently are obsessed by the Amazon puffer. And it's an important fact because of what it might signify for the world of luxury, uh, consumption, and if I may be excused for using a somewhat pretentious term on this podcast, the zeitgeist. So uh, the idea has been to pay a lot for a, uh, a luxuriously appointed and affluence signaling puff jacket. And you can get one from, I guess, Canada Goose. You can, I guess you can spend a couple of thousand dollars or at least a thousand for a uh, Moncler amethyst coat. Now, uh, that's for uh, 2,600 euros. That's kind of a a Deutsche Bank caliber purchase, right? Yeah. I, I, would, I would bet, not knowing, I would bet that Deutsche Bank is going to outfit like everybody in the bank with one of these uh, a 2,600 euro uh, Montclair amethyst coach just because it kind of like has money to burn, right? Well, they've, they've shown a, a real aptitude for burning money. Right. But this is like cheaper than blowing up a derivatives portfolio or a muni bond portfolio. Just outfit the whole staff with this. Well, and they, at the end of the day, you have something to show for it, which is a, a warm staff. Right. Now, so along comes Amazon. And despite uh, Jeff and Lauren... And despite Amazon's uh, starring presence in the New York City news, New York City being the fashion capital of the nation, Amazon is you know, not exactly uh, the brand you identify with high fashion or with necessarily with chic. But along comes Amazon, and it is, says the FT, says this wonderful column by Rachel Sanders, it is worrying the world of luxury because it has, as it were, disrupted people's expectations, sales, and... Uh, I don't know, and uh, they've dis uh, Amazon has disrupted their peace of mind. So here is Rachel Sanderson reflecting on the meaning of the phenomenon that is the Amazon $139.99, that's not euros, dollars, puffa jacket. Quote, the more subtle moral of the Amazon coat tale is one luxury executives fear so much they rarely dare to speak its name. That big global concerns over the economy, climate change, and sustainability may radically alter people's appetite for buying very expensive things. One veteran industry analyst in Milan says his greatest concern is that traditional luxury consumers will start to find it more chic to spend less and consume less. The growing market for Reading posh frocks and bragging about it on Instagram or buying only secondhand pricey handbags like those from Chanel or Louis Vuitton is seen as a sign the shift in consumer sentiment is here. So too is the Amazon coat sensation. In other words, in the future, you may proudly rent your Versace dress while you proudly own hashtag the Amazon coat. That's for what it's worth. And we at Grants do not take a narrow view of our remit. 
we haven't got like this uh, two, uh, what the Fed says has this two, uh, what are the words they use? I'll say this. Grants has a great track record of predicting fashion. We called Under Armour uh, nearly at the top of the stock four years ago, yeah. and since then it's been a straight line down. Yeah. Has Under Armour not been in the news? Oh, I, I think I saw something today. It, it turns out that the um, the CEO has a rather intimate relationship with an MSNBC anchor whom whose advice he takes over that of his board. I think the advisability of that executive plan would depend upon the quality of the advice from the particular journalist. Now, for example, I could see the Fed uh, doing better if it were to take the advice of a certain journalist. I, I, I could think of a journalist. Yeah. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining us today on Current Yield. But before I sign off, I want to once again encourage you to be with us on April 9th for our great spring conference uh, featuring, among other names I mentioned earlier, Edward Macquarie, who will challenge, as he has previously done in the pages of grants, the validity of the stocks for the long-run thesis. Anthony Scaramucci, a very, very plugged-in hedge fund manager and presidential advisor, is going to talk about Wall Street and Washington. And uh, our friend, oh, he's a, he's a friend of Fabiano Santin's, Andre Jakursky, is uh, an authority on investing in many places, including, not least, his home country of Brazil. So it's going to be a conference that uh, engages your attention in all manner of topics, and we hope in a way that will make you even richer than you were before you walked in the door. So see you on April 9th, and uh, you'll listen to us next time on Current Yield. <laughs>